Welcome to Lessons from the World's Best with me, Paddy Upton. In this episode, I have an engaging conversation with Australian cricketer Shane Watson, one of international cricket's most imposing and impactful all-rounders of the modern game. He played 14 years for Australia and amongst numerous accolades and records, was Australian Cricketer of the Year seven times across all three formats of the game and was the world's number one all-rounder for a record 150 weeks. This outwardly tough and fierce competitor on the field shares how his gentle and sensitive nature needed to be hidden and was constantly at odds with the tough and uncompromising Australian way. He discusses how he overtrained due to a hunger for success and perfection and how witnessing the on-field death of a teammate, Phil Hughes, killed by a bouncer to the head, caused a year of anxiety, fear, and below-par performances. He shares in-depth detail of how he overcame this and explains the mental game secrets he discovered towards the end of his career, as well as the extra things he did to stay ahead in his game, how he managed his mental health and wellness to sustain such a long career, and how the IPL changed him and brought to an end the decades-long Australian way. Shane is also a podcaster himself, a serial entrepreneur, and a family man who constantly looks to advance all aspects of his game, his health, and his life. All these different facets make Watto a very real, insightful, and fascinating podcast guest. Please enjoy this episode of Lessons from the World's Best as we hear from the gentle, sensitive, intelligent, and insightful warrior, Shane Watson. So just briefly, how are things your side before we jump into it? What's news? What's happening? Great. <laughs> um, yeah, gosh, uh, what's that? what is happening? There's a bit, yeah, there's a bit going on. Um, well, the kids are back at school, which is a great starting point. Um, there's no more sort of homeschooling. That was interesting last year. And... Um, yeah, just last week signed a gig um, to coach with Ricky at Delhi. Oh wow, that's to pretty work, cool. Work under him. Yeah, so test out the test out the coaching side of things. Okay, what's your role there, there with Delhi Delhi Capitals? Just yeah, just a like assistant coach, one of the assistant coaches. Okay, awesome. That can be pretty yeah, cool. So, um, yeah. Step there we go. Step <laughs> out. Step out of the playing clothing and sit on the bench and. <laughs> Pass on all your wisdom onto the field now, rather than walk onto the field with yeah. it. Yeah, oh, yeah, it should be, yeah, it should be great. Um, so that, and yeah, just got another. Um, got a cricket, cricket equipment business that I launched a year ago. So that's keeping myself and Lee busy, trying to just work through. That's non totally an online business, so that's a great a great challenge. Something very very different skill set. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> a lot of different moving parts, so it's um, yeah, keeping keeping me busy as well. But um, yeah, so yeah, things are can't complain at all. Uh, how, how, you, how how was your how was your last two years? I mean, we've all had a, an array of experiences. You got two young children and done a renovation yeah. at the same time. Um, yeah, it was <laughs> luckily luckily one of the schools, a Matilda school, were happy to take her. Um, so only had, we only had to homeschool Will, but yeah, we were living in an apartment while we while we were in lockdown. So trying to get stuff done while <laughs> while Will was trying to do his homeschooling. Um, but look, in the end, it was it, oh, it was is what it was. It was, it was more, the biggest challenge was, was for Will in particular the homeschooling and not 
really that's really development phase of their lives, just not interacting with any other kids really at all. So you could see their social skills and that start to fall away a bit. But now they're, they're back into it. Things have picked up a, picked up quite a bit now, but you just don't know. For other people who are a bit older maybe, you just don't know how much it's going to affect in those really development years of, of people's social skills and their ability to just be able to connect with people um, face-to-face. So it's... Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, how old is Will and Matilda now? Will's Will's eight, Matilda's six. Okay, sure. Yeah, um, yeah. how's how's Leela? How's she going? Yeah, how's she now? Leela's fifteen now, eh? Oh my god! Yeah, so yeah, she's she's doing well. I mean, it's been interesting for you know she was thirteen, just started high school when she went into this, so it was definitely very disruptive in a lot of ways for her and to watch her experience was was not easier but i mean we yeah pretty much through it now in south africa and things are mostly open and back to normal um but yeah. i can't say that she's back to normal a lot of her friends there's a whole lot of readjusting to do and a whole lot of hangovers yeah. and stuff that, that comes up with that we're realizing okay well that probably related to uh, two years of being locked indoors and so yeah yeah, we've all had our, our journey and some positives and some pretty shit stuff, quite frankly. Mm. Yeah, that's it. It's all. It's, it's, <laughs> it's what it is, isn't it? Oh. It's just so. It's just a shit thing that you never thought that would ever happen. Oh. Just be bloody locked away and governments and whoever just controlling exactly what you your decision making and what you can and can't do. It's bizarre. Yeah. I'm interested in in prepping for this. I mean, obviously, you and I have had mm. probably hundreds of hours of fascinating conversations, and you know, this mm. is an opportunity to continue that. But for the first time, having people who are going to listen in on it, which is a different yeah. dynamic. But I mean, I always love our conversations. You've also done a number. You've done a, your own podcast uh, season. You did a number of shows in your. Mm. What are some of the what are some of the things that really work? I mean, you've got a whole lot more experience as a host than I've got so far. This is probably my eighth or ninth mm. one. But So if you were to give me advice about how to go into this to set up for success, what are one or two of the, <laughs> what are two of the important, two important things that you've learned? Oh, gosh, the one, thing that I, the one thing that I wish I did was sort of staged out a little bit more. Like I started and just went hard. Instead of sort of having a longer-term sort of view is, okay, I'm going to – I'm going to do this. I'm going to have, I don't know, As at best I might be able to call on 50 favours <laughs> <laughs> to be able to do it and space it out maybe over like three seasons of 10 episodes. Oh, sorry, five seasons or, or three seasons of 15 or something like that, whereas I just went hard and just kept doing, like I just kept going and ended up doing like 40-odd episodes just like back-to-back weeks. I never missed a week. So... Um, I it end, <laughs> ended up sort of getting to a stage and like, okay, I'm out. <laughs> I can't, like I'm following up people and just in a nice way trying to just um, organise everyone's schedules and, and work through it. But um, so that's that would be the thing. If I had my time again, I'd have spaced it out over like probably three seasons um, over, over a couple of summers instead of just going flat stick for nearly a year <laughs> and then just going, oh, I'm out. That, that, that does sound a little bit like the Shane Watson that I know decided to do something and go flat stick at yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, that's it. And, so, and in terms um, of in in session, the sort of the 
conversation, the stuff that really were, how do you, what is a really good conversation? What are the ingredients of that verse? And I know none of yours were average, but like compared to a, a more average one that you've been part of or listened to. Um, well, what you taught me to listen, how to listen. Okay. <laughs> listen, yeah, right. don't just like, yeah, actually like what, like actually listen. Not just think about what you're going to say next. Actually, listen to what they're saying, and then and then pick up on what they say, and sort of dig in. If there's a if there's something to dig in deeper about, then definitely like go there. Um, whereas, yeah, early on, I just had what I wanted to say, like the questions I wanted to ask, and I didn't I didn't listen. I was thinking about what I was going to say next or what I was going to ask next instead of actually listening, and then digging deeper into it when someone sort of opened a, opened a little door. So that was from you. Okay. So, so, so I love listening to you. And so that, that part is going to be very easy for me. And, and I did say to yeah. me for the time, the idea behind this particular podcast that I'm doing is not to talk about the stories that are already out there and you've spoken about, is to dig a little bit deeper and sort of the story behind the story and, and, and chat about Shane as opposed to what Shane did. We, we all know that. So... I look forward to that. Um, so, so we got to know each other probably 10 years ago now. It's been our sort of personal journey together in various shapes and form. But, um, and, I, and I knew all about you from pretty much when you burst onto the international scene in the early 2000s. But I don't know a whole lot about Shane, the school kid, and your lead up to that. I mean, if I asked some of your good mates or your folks, like, what was Shane like? What was Shane, the, the, the kid, like? <laughs> um, fairly single-minded. <laughs> fairly single-minded. I, I always, um, I, I, knew what I, I knew what I wanted to do um, and I wasn't, whether I don't think I was, I was self, I wasn't selfish in a way because I was aware of uh, people around me and I, I did um, care for people around me but I was just very single-minded in um just what what my goals in my life were like it it I always wanted to play cricket for Australia that was since I can remember I was just a young kid and I, I, I dreamed of doing it but even like in primary school I just I loved all different types of sports I played played everything that I possibly could really winter winter was like rugby league or rugby union depending primary school was rugby league high school was rugby union in the winter and cricket but then I had back injuries through um, from bowling, so I didn't play rugby in a couple of years. So I played tennis, I did swimming, I just did like a, really a lot of different sports. But um, I was very much, especially when I got to high school, if you ask my teachers <laughs> who had me, they like, knew that I was, I was there to study as hard as I could because that was always what my parents instilled in me is to make sure that I got the best sort of pass mark that I possibly could. But then everything around it was, okay, well, I need to go to training. Nothing's going to get in my way to, to continue, continue to get better, whether that was at school or with my, with my sport in general. So I'd probably, yeah, I'd probably say that most people around me through my teenage years in particular would have thought that I was, um, I was pretty single-minded in, in a way that I just had the vision where I wanted to go and then I'd just do, really do everything I could to put all my energy, my time and effort into one, the sport um, in what I was doing, but then also outside of that into school because it was such an important part of, of my life, um, which was instilled by my parents, that I need to make sure that I got as good a, a pass mark as I possibly could in year 12. So then if something, 
if, if it didn't work out, which is a really good chance it wasn't going to work out from a professional sport perspective, that you had something to fall back on. That's one thing that my mum always always talked about because my mum was a um, was a very good swimmer. She um, was an Australian champion freestyler in the like what was that like the seventies around the seventies, uh, late sixties, early seventies, um, and ended up just missing out in the Olympics by one place wow. in two events. So um, she always, that's one thing, even though swimming wasn't, isn't, a, isn't and wasn't a, certainly wasn't a professional sport, but she sort of put a lot of energy into her swimming in her teenage years in particular. So she was always very adamant to make sure that you need something to fall back on no matter how much you, you love what you're doing and you want to push the limits how good you could be as a cricketer when I put all my eggs in that basket when I was 16, um, that you need to make sure you've got, an, you've got an education so you've got something to fall back on. She didn't say when it doesn't happen. She was very like encouraging, but it's like just in case it doesn't work out, <laughs> which is a, she wasn't saying. But I know, like yeah. looking back at it now, it's, there's just there's not a big chance of it working out. You need a lot of a lot of slight sliding doors moments for things to sort of just be right place, right time, right opportunities, right injuries at the sort of right or wrong time. It's just it's there's so many sliding doors moments yeah. that sort of open up open up at times to allow you to try and make the most of the opportunities and and get where you want to go yeah i mean it's it's interesting the two things i really pick up there and saying you were you were single-minded and you knew you always wanted to play cricket for australia but alongside that you you really did invest in doing as well as you could at 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 uh, school number one and the other thing is you said you played a lot of different sports even though you were single-minded wanting to play for australia so how, at, up until what age did you play those other sports at school and high school? Yes. Yeah, so um, high school, I predominantly played, rug, predominantly played rugby and cricket, um, rugby in the winter. And uh, at 16, I ended up making like the, a representative team um, in rugby. And um, for the, I went to the Australia, the Australian Championships under 16s and I ended up being on the bench. I only played like three quarters of the game out of five games. And um, and I, I knew that, I, one, I wasn't big enough. I wasn't, I was, a, I was a flanker or a number eight. I certainly wasn't tall enough to, to be a nut, like a, a good flanker or a number eight because they would jump in the line outs. Um, so I sort of knew where things were at. I didn't particularly like sitting on the bench either. Cricket, I didn't sit on the bench. I was always, always batting in the top order and bowling when I could. Um, so that was a realization that you know I'm just not I'm not good I'm just not good enough at rugby, and I just wanted to I always loved cricket more and I was always just probably naturally better at, at cricket as well. So from the age of 16, so I was going into year 12. I put I just I made the decision to put all my eggs in the cricket basket apart from my school, and just my school didn't like it because I was a good rugby player. Um, I would have I definitely would have played. I was going to play in the first 15 rugby. Um, they weren't that happy with it, but I wasn't on a scholarship, so I had I had the power and decision-making power to be able to say I'm not playing. Um, and I just put all my eggs in that basket, more so because I saw a number of really bad injuries from one guys that I played with, but also um, one guy or a couple of guys who were a couple of years above me at school who played both rugby and, and cricket and they got injured um, playing rugby and it affected their cricket season. And I was like, you know what, I don't want to have any chance of rugby affecting my cricket season. That's, I want to put all my eggs in, in that basket and do it, try and see how good I could be, whatever that meant. 
whatever that meant, whether it was being a, a good club cricketer, whether it was actually coming close to achieving my dream of reaching the dream of playing for Australia, but I just wanted to see how good I could be. So I just put everything else aside. Apart from I went to university for a, for a year full-time, I had that there as well, but outside of that it was just just <laughs> single mind to see how good I could be. Okay, and when, when did you finish year 12? So I finished year 12 in 1998. Okay, so then you had sort of yep. four years between then and when you made your Australian debut. What did that four years look yep. like? Yeah, so the first year after I finished school, so 99, I went to university full-time full and studied business and human movements. I had no idea what I wanted to do apart from I loved, I found the body very interesting. Um, I wanted to learn as much as I could around the, the whole um, anat- anatomy and physiology and biomechanics of, of the human body while I was continuing to try and push the limits of my body as a cricketer. So I studied full-time. In that year, I had a, um, a shoulder operation because I hurt my shoulder throwing when I was 16 and I couldn't really throw much at a, um, yeah, and I knew that if I wanted to try and play cricket for Australia, my goal was to play Australian under-19s as a starting point. I know, I knew that I needed to be able to throw properly. I couldn't be someone at the age of 18 not being able to throw like further than 15 metres. So I had a shoulder, a minor shoulder operation, just a labral, um, a bit of labral fraying, so I just um, trimmed that and a bit of rehab through my first university year. And then towards the back end of that year, I ended up um, getting an opportunity to be able to play. I played the Australian 19 Championships and made the Aussie under-19s and went to the World Cup in 2000 in Sri Lanka. And then I just had the most incredible opportunity. Uh, Rod Marsh was the coach of the Australian under-19s um, and he, uh, he invited me to go down to the Cricket Academy, which was just like I was just I knew that what the stepping stones were to be able to try and get on a get on the path pathway and Australian the Queensland under 19s, Australian under 19s, then the Cricket Academy, that was where all the best cricketers went to. All the best cricketers in Australia. That if you went there, there's a great chance you could you'd you'd come out of that that factory um, a much better better cricketer. So to have that opportunity, you had four and a half months of like of just eating, sleeping, breathing cricket that was in um, in 2000. So, um, so I had four and a half months at the Cricket Academy, which was just the best, uh, the best time, best time of my life. So many great, like so many great people who were around in that, in that Academy intake year as well. And, um, and that was really where things took off. I deferred my university because I just, for that time, I put all my eggs in that basket for that year, just to be able to fully engross myself in, into that whole experience. And, um, and things just, yeah, things ended up gradually sort of taking off after that because I just, whatever Rod Marsh told me and everyone at the academy, I did a million times. It's like if you tell me to bang my head up against a brick wall a thousand times, then I'm going to do it because I know it's going to, there's more chance of it making me a better cricketer. So um, that's <laughs> that's what I did and I, and I loved it. So from that moment on, though, I went to the cricket academy. That was in 2000. Then by July, uh, January 2001, I had an opportunity to be able to play um, Greg Shippard, who's now the coach of uh, the Sixers and has had a lot of incredible amount of success um, throughout his coaching career. He was the coach of Tasmania. He took a risk on on me, a young, a young all-rounder, to come down to Tassie, moved down to Tassie halfway through the season. So I moved down there in January for the last half of the, of the first-class season. Got an opportunity to play five one-days and five first-class games to see what I could do and, and things worked out worked out incredibly well. Sure. And then, so it's soon after that you get 
picked into, I mean, what was really the great Australian team of that late 90s, early 2000s. I mean, what was it like as a, as a youngster stepping into that Australian team? I mean, what are your memories or experiences of sort of your early days in that amazing side? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, I remember the first time I got on the plane to because my first the first tour that I picked on was to go to South Africa in two thousand and two, uh, the Test tour, and the, all the legends <laughs> were playing. Everyone that I uh, Steve Waugh was the captain of that tour. Um, Shane Warne was played his hundredth Test in Cape Town. Matt Hayden was the peak of his powers, as was Ricky Ponting. Um, <laughs> uh, Glenn McGrath was there. Jason Gillespie. Brett Lee, um, Damien Martin was at the peak of his powers. It's just like, it's, a, it's just nonstop, Justin Langer. Um, so it was really just, a, I knew when I got on the plane, it was just like all my idols were, were walking in front of me and I um, felt incredibly fortunate and lucky. But it didn't take me too long to realise that I've got a long way to go. Mm-hmm. I knew I had a very honest appraisal of where my skill set was, <laughs> were and was compared to those guys and I was nowhere near where um, I needed to be. So um, from that time, I was just I was trying to get as much information as I possibly could from everyone to help me out, whether it was the players, um, you know, and two players probably in particular really, like, took me under their wings and I feel very, very fortunate for that. One was Ricky Ponting because of my connection initially down in Tasmania, playing down there because that's where he's from. Um, I was able to get to know him even before I went into the Australian squad. So he was always went out of his way to just look after me, to talk to him, to take me out for a coffee, spend time getting to know me and helping me and answering all the questions I had. Um, so he was amazing. And the other one was Shane Warne. Warne just was incredible, I think, because I was a, the young guy on the on the scene as someone to um, that he could take under his wing and just his his care and and um, and support that he gave through my, uh, well, throughout my whole career really, but through that early stage when I was trying to fit in, found out, to try to work out where I fit in, Warney was absolutely brilliant looking after me and and um, and taking me under his wing, especially more so from the cricket side of things. Like he was just, he knew how much I wanted to learn and he was just an, you know, a world encyclopedia, an encyclopedia of cricket. So he was so open to, to help me out as well. So it was in... Yeah, it was incredibly daunting once I realised where my skill set was and I had a lot of work <laughs> to be able to really continue to develop my skills to get it up to close to where I needed to be. Um, but it was, uh, yeah, very, a very special time. Like I, I think back at all the people that I was, I was around um, in the early start of my career and that's why I feel so fortunate. I got learned, learned how to play cricket the Australian way um, by so many of the greatest cricketers, not just just played for Australia but um, played throughout the world. So, I mean, you were very fortunate to have two guys like that really take you under their wing into this great team. I mean, and, and from the outside, it always seemed like that team was a real tough, aggressive, uncompromising, almost hostile team, or that's what they portrayed outwardly. How was it as a – did you have that internally? Was it also a tough environment internally? So you got these two guys, got you under their wing and giving you some love, but – the environment in itself was it how tough or easy was it to integrate into that unit? There was really only one person who made it difficult for me, <laughs> and I get it. I get it. I was a young buck. I hadn't really done that much. I had a, a couple of spells bowling wise where I bowled. That was when I was mad and loose as a fast bowler, bowling as fast as I could, and scored a few runs. So I was this 
an Oz development player, really. Australia were looking out for a fast bowling all rounder, and I was and I was it. All the previous sort of players who had that opportunity from over the previous sort of five years and me getting that chance didn't hadn't really make them made the most of that opportunity. So they're willing to sort of take a punt. But there's only one person really in particular who just made me feel like I definitely <laughs> had to do the hard yards <laughs> and perform a bit better. Um, and but everyone everyone else and I, it, was, it was Mark Wall. Mark Wall was my hero growing up. So I only used Slazenger from the age of I think eleven. Um, up until up until I was 19, I used Slazenger because of Mark Wall. I just loved everything about him, the way he played, the way he batted, the way he fielded, everything. Um, and then he just, I get it. He, he had to bide his time. He ended up scoring over 10,000 first-class runs before he got a chance to play a test match. <laughs> so I get it. And here <laughs> so you come as it. a young upstart into the team and early on in your career. And I I'd probably, I'd probably hadn't even scored 1,000 runs, like not, no, not even 1,000 runs, and it's got – maybe 20 wickets. <laughs> so, and I get it. Um, but it's it's incredible. Like for Mark Wall, for example, I played a tour match in PE. Um, and again, I was never going to play this test series. I was just there as getting, finding my feet in the environment to then play, play get an opportunity to play one day cricket. I played a tour match in PE um, and the team had scored a, a lot of runs and I came in batting at number seven and just, I had nothing to lose. So I just loaded up and ended up getting a hundred in that tour match. And from from that that night after I got the hundred, Mark was sitting at, sit, sat next to me at dinner and started asking a few more questions about um, me and my life and things. Of, and he's always been yeah, a great support and always a, a brilliant guy. And I really enjoyed his company after that. <laughs> <laughs> so, but but everyone else, um, everyone else was incredibly from the day one when I went in there. Everyone was so generous, even though yes, from the outside they had this. Um, bravado about being a really tough um engage like just fully on the whole time and not um being open to any outsiders whatsoever it was just this really um siege mentality in a way and um but everyone was so incredibly open and kind to to look after me and they knew that i was desperate to learn um so that everyone gave up their time whether it was at training outside of that taking me out for letting me take them out for coffee and just talk about cricket and life and everything. And um, so in that regard, it was very welcoming. But then I learned how to, over the next you know, three or four years, I learned how to play the Australian way um, around around the opposition just and, – and it still carried with me. And, Paddy, you would you definitely would have seen it um, at times during my time um, with the Rajasthan Royals and then the Sydney Thunder. I just, I just grew up just despising the opposition – so, so, always, you know, so, like, so give, give us an yeah. insight into the Australian way that you, you talk about and we can laugh about it. So, yeah, well, and things things had changed, started to change from IPL 2008. Yeah. Things definitely started to shift because yeah, well, let's, let's, we'll, we'll, around, let, let's go back to, right? before we go into that sort of <laughs> as a change, let's go back to what, what was yeah. that, okay. the Australian way? So the Australian way was like the op- we, we despise the opposition. We don't like. We don't call them by their we don't call them by their nicknames. We call them by their first name. We don't like engage in any conversation, especially definitely on the field. Definitely not on the field. You don't engage in any conversation. We're not their friends. We're there. We're there to win. Okay, we're not their friends. So if you and if you're seen talking and having a laugh with the opposition, <laughs> you, you know about it pretty quickly. So it was just that it was. It's very much that was the that was the way you played. You didn't so I always felt uncomfortable in the ICC events, and I know most other guys did as well. 
when you had to go down to breakfast and you had all the teams around you. And you're like, well, you're not to say, like, you're not really, you can say hi and say hi, so-and-so, your first name, but that was it. There's no engagement. There's no, like, not much small talk at all. That's just how, how it was. So, so, you, um, so and, the Australian players, you didn't set out to win any popularity stakes in the international cricket world, really, over that time? With, with opposition no. players as? Oh, no. Know, <laughs> Not a, no, it was all it was all about like deserting your dominance and creating. But and what it did do is create this aura around the team. I know that it created the aura because of the the quality of those players. Like yeah. it was incredible. There was no real weaknesses in any team that they put out. Um, so that created the aura. But then also just not giving the opposition like any like insight into like. The human beings as well. <laughs> no insight at all. Whether you're a good guy, whether you whether you weren't, it did like no one cared. It was just don't give don't give anything to the opposition at all on and on and off the field. Um, and and then the great thing was then the IPL came along and then it sort of broke down all these barriers. So um, you know people who played against Ricky Ponting, who then played with him for KKR the first year, go oh geez. He's actually a really good guy. Same with like Glenn McGrath played at Delhi first year. Same thing like Glenn McGrath just despised every batsman on the planet. He like he a batsman for Glenn McGrath never played a good shot. It was always him bowling a bad ball. <laughs> That's how much he does. <laughs> so um, and then um, and then you had someone like Matt Hayden as well. Matt Hayden just again despised the opposition. But then he played for CSK and everyone got to know he's actually this really sweet, super interesting, caring, loving guy. But no one up until sort of IPL got an insight really into that, especially around international, the international cricket scene. So um, that was a, a big shift, I suppose, in, in a way around the Australian cricket team when, when that started to sort of open up the um, human aspect, <laughs> human aspect of the Australian cricketers in a way. Um, but that was just what what I grew up sort of learning how learning how to play, and um, it was well I suppose it was it was very successful for a long period of time. So that's what I always believed was the was the way that you that you had to play, and um, yeah, and, <laughs> didn't and, know any different. Yeah, and I mean, and the reality is we've spoken about this before. You certainly once you'd settled in and became a regular, you played that game really well. You were this fiery, aggressive, confrontational, particularly when you bowled, you were particularly aggressive, confrontational. Um, that was your persona in, in international cricket. You took that on the Australian way and you personified that to some <laughs> degree, at least on the field. Yeah, well, I, I did, but that was always the way that I played as well, like growing up. I know that was sort of how you learned how to play in the Australian team, but that's how like my, my sort of best times that I played when I was younger was when I really got into the battle. It didn't necessarily have to be like that real sort of one-on-one -on -one fight with the opposition and, and really getting into that. But I always needed that extra little bit of intensity to be able to bring out the best in myself. So more so to move away the internal battle to the outward battle. <laughs> that was yeah. something I was pretty good at was the internal battle, like yes. with, with myself around putting pressure on myself and um, not express, not allowing myself and trusting my own skill. So that outward battle was something that I, I could fall into very easily because I knew that worked um, and I didn't know any, I didn't have any other mechanism to be able to get the best out of myself as well. So that was just, I suppose it fitted into the way in the end with the way the Australian cricket team played. But I didn't know any other way of how to get the best out of myself apart from really getting into that battle. So the outward battle with the opposition, so the internal battle didn't, didn't take yeah. over, which 
it would at times and quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I remember a conversation you and I had around exactly this and, I mean, I think what you said then was like as the younger Shane Watson or the younger international Shane Watson, you would deliberately pick a fight with someone and outwardly play that fight out, which, you know, it created a certain reputation that that got built around the way that you operated. And later in your career, you found a, a different way to still engage in that battle without actually taking biting someone's head off on the field. It was not as consistent as body. <laughs> occasionally it would come out, Patty, and you saw it a, a few times. Um, occasionally it would come out, but it certainly wasn't. I ended up finding the right method to have that have that outward battle without it being the the one-on-one sort of in, in the opposition's face <coughs> battle. I, I found a way to be able to develop that intensity inside of me so um, to have that outward battle but not yeah, engage in that um, constant sort of fight on the field, which um, in the end <laughs> was was the persona that I, that I created because that was what, what I did. Um, but in the end I realised... I didn't have to. I didn't have to engage that way every single time to, that I played. That there's other ways to be able to bring the best version of yourself, um, and ended up discovering that a fair bit later in my career. <laughs> um, but I'm glad I discovered yeah. it. So we'll get to, and you've done you've done a lot of work around understanding your own mind and how that plays out in performance. But if you, if you were to reflect back now, and you talked about that that internal battle that you you took. Outwards, but so what was that? Looking back now, that internal battle. If we could get inside Shane Watson's head and around the conversations you had with yourself, sort of the, the earlier part of your international career. Mm. Oh gosh, it was it was mainly around one just putting so much pressure on myself to perform. I was so desperate to 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 score runs and take take wickets and 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 perform that I put so much pressure on myself. I I just I trained, I overtrained because I was just so desperate to try and train, like to be a perfectionist of training. So I'd go into games fatigued because I'd just push the limits of training, um, then thinking that I could go into a game not that fresh and one, not get injured, but two, been able to, been able to perform. So the biggest thing that I, I felt um, since, I was a, <clears throat> since I was a kid really was just the pressure and expectations that I put on myself every time I went to play. And it really did suffocate myself a lot low around the mindset, the internal battle was don't get out, don't make a mistake. Today I have to score runs, today I have to score 100. Um, today I've got to get wickets. Gosh, it's a big game. Um, selectors are here, I need to perform. Like all these internal battles that um, I didn't, I had no idea, I didn't have skills to how to, to redirect those thoughts into the right thoughts to engage the right part of my brain, the right part of my, my skills. Um, so that was probably the, the biggest thing that I needed to I needed to work through and develop this mental skills on how to redirect that um, pressure of expectation and outcome that I was so desperate to achieve. Um, yeah. So how, then, how, how then, did that? Oh, sorry, yeah. carry on, Shane. Uh, then then the other one was um, was really about again it probably tied it definitely tied into it, it was around the fear of failure. Was I yeah. used to worry? I used to worry a lot. If I didn't score runs, I then I worried a lot. Oh, am I going to get picked? Am I? How? What's going to happen? Is am I um, going to go on this tour? Um, geez, I really need to score runs. I need to perform. Otherwise, I'm going to get dropped. So, I was a I was very good at um, digging a pretty deep hole from from worry as well, uh, and worrying about things that are out of my control. And and that was one of the big things that I developed the skills around understanding. Well, I can. The most important thing 
that I need to do is just be in control of bringing the best version of myself. Then understand that there's going to be factors outside of my control, good and bad, um, that can have a positive effect on the outcome or a negative effect on the outcome. And I've got to be as well prepared as I can to try and limit those negative outcome um, factors to be able to try and not um, it not be as big of bigger um, impact. But it wasn't until I really understood that and really accepted that that all I can do is bring the best version of myself every single time and then and not be focused on the result, um, be focused on what I can do and stay present with that and just keep doing that over and over again. That's the best chance of me bringing the best. And that was, that was me when I wasn't my best, but I just didn't have those skills to pull myself into, it, into that. It was more so situations... I got it a lot of the time it meant I got into a battle, I got into the outward battle and I fell into that space instead of actually directing myself into it without even, uh, well, directing myself into that by using my understanding of where I was at mentally to drive myself into that, that right headspace. Yeah. So early on you've, you've had this real desperation and pressure to do well, which obviously has driven you to train as hard as you did, be as hungry as you were, be as professional as you were. So there was a real upside to that perfectionism that you had and an upside to the fear of failure or fear of being dropped because it's, it's again, pushed you to be train as hard as you did, be as professional as you were. But then when you cross the ropes with a bat in your hand or the ball in your hand, that desperation to do well, score the 100, take wickets or not fail, that then – so how did that play out? How did that – negatively impact now when you look back at that desperation to do well or fear of doing badly, how did that impact your performance on the field? Oh, gosh. I, well, what I'd get always get so far in front of myself. So if I, was, if I was out batting and I felt really good and I got off to a really good start, then I'd just start moving my mind forward to, oh, today's my day. This is a big day. I need to get like, I need to get 100 today. So I was incredibly good at moving my mind forward into instead of, and then, uh, so, and then, so, so when, when your mind did that, then what would happen? I, oh, I didn't. I didn't have the. I didn't have the mental skills or the capability to be able to pull myself back. Um, so, so how would that play out? Actually, how, would, how would that play out in your game then? Oh, I'd get to 30, 40, 50 a, a lot of times without too much, like batting really well, and then I'd get out. I'd make a mistake, and then I'd get out. And then I'd get out and walk. I'd go back and sit down in the changer and beat myself up about. I'm you know, mentally weak, I can't concentrate, uh, all this sort of stuff. Um, but the thing that I di- also didn't understand is how much mental energy that I was burning as well. <laughs> yeah. I was burnt like in, even in the lead up to the even in the lead up to the game, oh my gosh, I'd just be constantly when I wasn't training, I was thinking about the game. I was thinking about how big a bigger series it was. I was thinking about who I was going to be playing. So I never really had any mental downtime to be able to conserve my mental energy. And then I'd wake up in the morning of the test match or of the game and I'd start, okay, today it's a big it's a big game. I need to score runs. I need to start. So I'd just be churning through mental energy. I had no routine, mental skills routine on how to conserve my mental energy because I didn't fully realise that <laughs> um, your, your brain is a muscle and it's only got a certain amount of energy every day. Yeah. And if you burn it out really quickly, guess what? You can't access all the skills you've got, the, you know, the muscle memory, all that stuff that you've ingrained in yourself, that those pathways start to get a little bit muddied, whether that's decision-making, whether that's actually like reflexes. And then I'd move, I'd get out, make a mistake. I'd, move, I'd go and have a look at the footage. 
look at the technical aspect. Oh, okay, I got out that way. Then I worked with the coaches on the technical side of it and I'd never, ever ask a question, where was my mind at? Where was my mind at in the lead up to it? Had I, had I burnt through all my mental energy? Was I fresh? Um, <laughs> never asked those questions until I started to learn about meditation. Thanks to you, Patty, for pu pushing me in the direction of the uh, Deepak Chopra, uh, The Perfect Health, which is uh, one book that just changed, changed my life, um, that perspective. And, and then, then after that, learning about mental skills and one of the most important things is in mental skills is to be able to, one, stay present, but two, conserve your mental energy. So when you actually really need it, <laughs> have it ready. So meditation yeah. was a huge part. Sleep was a huge part of that. But then also having the mental routine in and around balls. So I'm, going, I'm, going, so I'm, I'm just going to stop you here because <laughs> you're going ahead to where I really do want to spend time and not rush through. Is like, So what are the things you got right? We're definitely going to go there. I just want to take a step back. Yeah, so, so you're batting on 30, 40. You're feeling really good. Your mind is going, okay, today's my day. I'm going to get 100. Uh, you start thinking about the results and you make a mistake. What – label that mistake. So what is the oh, mistake that you actually make? Most of the time, most of the time it would be not having the right energy at that ball and I'd get out a lot of the time because especially later on in my career after I sort of came onto the scene, all bowlers were always trying to beat me on the inside, always trying to – especially in test cricket were trying to get me out LB. That was their – and they just knew if they kept bowling there – especially because of where my mind was at, there's a chance that I was just going to be off for one ball and bang, I'm exposed. So were, so you, were you exposed time, because you were over-defensive? Were you exposed because you just weren't in the right place or you were over-attacking? For me, it was more so, for me when I was at my best, as the ball was bowled, I was really aggressive, I was, and which meant I was moving fast. It didn't mean that I was trying to launch the ball out of the ground in a, in a test match, but I was really aggressive so I could move quickly power forward and back and trust that I'd defend a ball if it's a good ball, let a ball go or, or, or react and put a loose ball away. So that was when I was at my best. But if I was slightly off, um, I would, on, on a ball, it would be, I just, I didn't have that energy in my feet or energy in my mind as the ball was bowled and I'd be a bit sluggish, I'd be a bit late on the ball. Okay. Um, so then I'd, so then I'd get, then I'd get exposed because the bowlers were always trying to open up, open up my weakness. So then I'd, again, then I'd get out and I'd just start beating myself up. Oh, gosh, you can't concentrate. You can't even, like, you can't even bat. You get, like, trying to get through to lunch and you can't even get through to lunch. It's probably, like, 30 or 40. Um, and I'd start beating myself up about not concentrating hard enough. Um, like, how, like, I'm weak, I'm soft. I can't even, like, concentrate for long periods of time. Um, but my issue was that I was just on the whole time. <laughs> Mm. I was on when I was at non strikers in. I was on in between balls. Obviously, I was on as a ball was about to be bowled, and I just I didn't conserve any of that mental energy. So that was probably so that was one that was one aspect. But the other, the negative side of it is when I hadn't scored runs for a while. If I'd missed out in a couple of games, then I'd go totally defensive. I'd be don't get out. Okay, I'm going to go on bat, and I'm just not going to get out. And then I'd just scratch around, defend, and not play any shots at all. And it was painful for me. It was pay probably painful for people watching. It was just a super defensive innings. I was just so worried about getting out. And in the end, I'd get out because I'd fluff it. I'd half hit a shot or whatever it was. So that was the sort of the don't get outside of, of my game as well, which 
would come in because there's going to be times when you miss out more for a couple of games in a row. And then because I was so desperate to score to, to perform, I'd go in the other side, the, the opposite side of I'd go when I was at my best, which was, yeah, don't get out. Whereas when I was at my best, I was never thinking of getting out. <laughs> I was just aggressive taking on the game and trusting my instincts. Uh, whereas when I wasn't at my best, I'd turn the other way and just be, just be focused on, on not getting out. And that was always not me at my best, nowhere near me at my best. Yeah, I'm not, and the distinction you're really making there is, and we've spoken about this, is one is when you're thinking and your thinking brain is super slow. Mm, um, exactly. And whether you're thinking to either chase a 100 or chase success or you're thinking about avoiding failure and those are two of the biggest mental obstacles to success <laughs> is pressure and fear. Pressure is chasing a positive result, fear running away from a negative. But both of them get you stuck in your thinking mind and our thinking mind is slow. So you'd fluff a shot or be late on a shot, as you said, whereas your sweet spot is in your instinctive brain when you're not thinking. But we'll, we will, I, I want to really dive into that. And then, of course, the thing that, we love and we've laughed about a whole lot and you just mentioned it here. So you, you make a mental error, overly defensive, or your mind's not in the right place. You go and mm. look at it in the video. You It plays out in a technical error, which you and your coach see because it's really simple. You put up a little split screen of when you got that yeah, shot yeah. right and when you got it wrong. And then you go into the nets and you address that little technical error. <laughs> And it's nice Shocking, and safe it? and it's it's a safe conversation to have. Yeah, coach, I didn't quite get him into strong front foot position and the coach throws to you in the nets and what happens with the very first ball, you get into that. Unbelievable, isn't it? Who would, have, who would have thought that that's actually, like I look back at it and I just think it just, it blows me away that most importantly, it's not it's not the coaches, it's, it's no one else's. It's It's me. Why did I not ask the question? The two questions. One was, yes, technical. That's a big part of the game if my technique was slightly off. But two, and as importantly or more importantly, was where's my mind at? But I just didn't have the understanding and the knowledge to ask that question. And it wasn't until after I educated myself on it, like later on after I retired from test cricket, <laughs> um, and then I finally understood that information. Then I went back um, and, you know, part of – part of a podcast series that I did was asking people about their mental skills and guys that I played with that I did not even like Ricky Ponting, who was my mentor was, I asked him about everything. We talked batting all the time. Guess we talked about the technical aspect of batting. I never actually really, I never asked him. So where's your mind at in the lead up to like the ball being bowled? Um, what's your, like, what's your routine in the lead up to a game? Like what's your mental like skills that you have and that you've developed that you know work for you? I never ask those questions. How like how ridiculous! So I look back at it and just go, "Gosh, that's just you, you don't you don't know what you don't know." But that's the one thing. It's just as you said, it's so safe. It's it's easy for coaches and easy for me to see. Okay, well that's there's a difference between me when I'm playing that ball well, and me when I'm not, and everyone can see it. But the mindset, coaches can't see it. Only you, only you actually know what's going on inside, and um, and it's it. The, as soon as soon as coaching shifts, and I know that's a, a big part of your incredible skill set, Patty, was actually asking those questions. But until every coach, and this is not just cricket around the world in all sports, actually asks the first question, "Where's your mind at?" before they even go to the technical side of things, there's going to be people who start doing things that they never thought they could. 
and start achieving things more than they ever thought they could. Um, but most coaches that I've been around, they don't ask that. It's all about the technical because it's what they see. Yes, so coaches could ask that question, and I appreciate that. If a coach asked a younger Shane Watson like, what was going on in your mind and you knew you were worried about getting out, worried about selection or worried mm. about – would you have been honest and told your coach that what was going on no. for you? No, I wouldn't have, but at least I would have actually asked myself that question. So I definitely wouldn't have – I definitely wouldn't have answered that question, not honestly, to a coach, no way. Why not? Um, but – Oh, because you know I'm exposing your weakness. Like I'm not, I'm not saying I'm really struggling. Because <laughs> then that coach will probably go and that coach will go and tell the selector, and there's <laughs> a chance they go, "Geez, he's nowhere. It's time to get rid of him." <laughs> <laughs> so, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't ever reveal it. But at least if that per, that coach kept asking the question, say, "Look, you don't have to tell me, but I'm going to give you a skill set. I'm going to give you a mental skill set, so you can understand this information." And you'd have to tell me because you're absolutely right, Patty. You don't, you're not going to tell a coach and you feel vulnerable and you could be exposed. But I'm going to give you a set of skills and the information that you need and then you go and ask yourself that question to be able to work through it. Uh, so um, you're one of the best all-rounders in the time in the world. Um, you spend 150 weeks or something as the number one all-round, I think, in T20 cricket in the world. And you're not going to tell your coach that you're not going to expose your mental weakness. You're not going to have that conversation. No. So, so what price is somebody else telling their coach? And I mean, in that, I think there's a, a real opportunity to go like, <laughs> well, what, why is it that players and coaches aren't having this incredibly important conversation? And there's this thing in the sports world that everyone says the mental side is 80% of success. I think that's bullshit. I think it's mental mm. technical is 50-50. We just think it's 80 okay. because we, we never ever speak yeah, yeah. about that. But what's, <laughs> yeah, exactly. what's, what's going on that this is it's still to this yeah. day it's not spoken about? What? Yeah, I know. It's yeah, absolutely right, Patty. Yeah, absolutely spot on. And it's and it is it's crazy. But again, Patty, I think the the one thing as well is if coaches are able to build up a really a rapport with a player, a real connection with a player, and they feel safe, then there's more chance of a player opening up to to a coach. And that was my experience with you, Patty. Like no no coach that I actually really been around had had taken the time to really get to know me and actually build that trust. So you knew that when you were going to talk about like <laughs> your deficiencies, like where was your mind at? You feel like you, you trusted that that was, you, you were just there to help. It wasn't to expose expo <laughs> expose you and pass on that information um, to a selector or someone else to go, well, geez, Tom, get rid of him, he's nowhere. Um, it was actually there to help and to care. And, um, and, but not many, but a lot of the time, not many coaches really take that time to build that rapport where that trust has, is built so people feel safe when they actually can be honest. Um, and you're absolutely right. Like, why hasn't, why isn't it? Because it's such an important part of the game. It's 50-50. It's 50-50, yeah. but very rarely do, <laughs> very rarely do, do players expose themselves in a way because they just don't feel, they don't feel safe in a safe enough environment that it's not going to be used against them. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess on both sides, it's one, you know, from coach's side to 
you know, to realize most coaches were players and they also had the same vulnerabilities and insecurities and doubts. <laughs> and they also spent an enormous amount of energy trying to prevent anybody seeing those things and put on this front that I'm this really tough, mentally strong, got no cracks in my mental armory that's cricketer. It. And then when they coaches, they they forget that that's actually what went on for me as well. Mm. But from the player's side, you know, the as you say, you need to feel safe, but it's also the courage to be vulnerable and open up and say, well... Yep. You know, it's not just I'm. There's a big thing now, and through bio bubbles and so many players coming out mm. saying that I'm mentally struggling with some things, and sort of the mental wellness conversation at least is is coming up more and more. Um, but it's still a conversation that you know every player should be having, ideally with their coach, with someone is like, what's going on in your mind, and particularly those times when your mind is off and you end up playing that that shot because you felt pressure or you felt nervous or anxiety or whatever it might be, those perfectly normal things that, as you said, we we can't talk about. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. It's it's great what you said there around the wellness side of things. People are being – it's a great thing that people are speaking up more about their wellness um, side, side of their, their, uh, their mental health, which is a great thing. Um, and certainly these bio bubbles – are creating a much more challenging environment to people um, to be able to sort of navigate their way through. But unfortunately, from a performance, like mental health aspect, people still, yeah, it's it's certainly not, there's not many places that are a safe place for people to actually feel that they can, um, feel they can speak up in a way and, and show that vulnerability to be able to get better. And... Um, yeah, it's it's fascinating. That's like some of the a couple of the, or some of the mental skill sessions that I've that I've done over the last sort of few years with with teams and individuals. Um, they're the first times after those sort of sessions where people actually start talking about like below the surface. <laughs> so just a fluff and technique, and that's like on the surface. So actually digging down and talking about like what they've worked through and what they've had to sort of to the challenges that they've faced, and it's all yeah, it's a mental aspect technical everyone sort of goes through similar things and everyone's dealing with it but uh in their own way but the mental the mental side of things to actually have that conversation starter um doesn't happen happen very often it needs yeah. to needs to happen a hell of a lot more because yeah. then we're going to again we're going to get before we're going to see so many more incredible performances because at the moment there's a huge percentage of people sort of locking themselves up because they don't want to show a weakness and actually be vulnerable enough to be able to then develop those skills to get so much better. Yeah, and, and I, I do want to, and I've been saying it, we're going to jump into, so what are some of those skills and special things you did? <laughs> yeah. But just as you were talking there, it's triggered a memory that I'd completely forgotten is sort of midway through a Sydney Thunder season um, where we were sort of on our back foot, you were, the, you were the captain and I was coaching the side and we hadn't had a good half. And midway through some time, you and I decided we're going to actually have a conversation and talk to each other as people. And one of the things we did is ask people to share the most significant thing that actually events in their life. And for half, we knew about half the people was going to be positive and other half was going to be a really difficult or personal tragedy and it wasn't really cricket related. And we spent an hour and a half coming to really understand each other as players and it hadn't, there was no cricket talk whatsoever. And that got people open and trusting and it got the vulnerability and the empathy and the caring for each other. All of those like personal, interpersonal things and the feeling for each other changed. The conversation in the team changed. Our, our season changed and, and 
we went on to win that season. I remember you saying this at the end, it's like that was the turning point when we actually really spoke to each other as people and listened and came to understand each other as people. That actually turned our season around. Yeah. <laughs> Who I don't thought? <laughs> Who would have thought that that's a, and that's the thing. Like so many <clears throat> in every in every team, just about it's all like on on the surface conversation. There's very very rarely do you get like an intervention really that brings you into opening yourself up and getting below the surface. And unless it's, unless it's your best mate, um, in it, um, you're just not revealing any really layers of yourself at all. And and, a, and an incredibly simple exercise like that where people actually start to, they show their vulnerability um, and the connection that builds within a, within an environment is so powerful. Um, and again, but those interventions aren't really, aren't done, aren't done at all really, hardly ever, apart from the teams that I've been in with you, Patty, um, because it's just not, it's not something that as, as the um, alpha males, <laughs> it's not normally what you do. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I go back to, and I've told the story, and I, I think I've, I've shared it with you, is when, when I first coached Rajasthan Royals in 2013, and it was my first ever coaching gig, and I'd sort of been working as a mental coach up until then, and I, I, I'd sort of understood most of the senior players who were joining the team, having watched them all play or been involved in teams with them, but you were the one player I could never figure out. You were the sort of really imposing, aggressive, big, fast bowler, aggressive batsman not the, in the Australian way. And I sort of, I could never figure out Shane Watson, even when I was with teams with the Indian team for three years when we played against Australia. I'd sort of figured out the personality of most Australian players, but you were the one I could never figure you out. <laughs> and I remember within 24 hours going like, no wonder I couldn't because I saw you as this really imposing, aggressive, confrontational player. And within 24 hours, it was I realized that you are one of the most gentle, sensitive, caring, consummate team men I've ever come across. And it's like, you are so gentle and so sensitive. And it's just the antithesis of what was put out there. And I guess that so much that's how people were interacting. And I was looking at you like that. And, you know, that's it's been an absolute pleasure coming to know the gentle, caring, consummate team man, always considerate of other people, Shane Watson. Um, yeah, you're very yeah. kind, buddy. Jeez. Um, <clears throat> yeah, and, and that was the thing that I always, honestly, that's the thing that I suppose always struggle with in a way that I knew the person that I, that I was off the cricket field, but on the cricket field I was in, like I was in survival mode, like <laughs> proper survival mode. So then when people would sort of meet me away from on the field, they go, oh my gosh, like, wow, you're actually like, like pretty chill, <laughs> relaxed. I'm like, yeah, well, I don't just walk down the like walk down the street trying to <laughs> trying to pick a fight to because <laughs> I'm in survival mode. It's me or you. That's only, that was only my you know my persona in a way on the cricket field. But and again, it wasn't until that I was able to develop the real understanding of what the best version of myself was. Was yes, there's times where it automatically sort of kicked in through the. Um, through that battle, but it didn't have to be that way all the time. Whereas I thought it did, um, and but away from the field, I knew that, that wasn't. Yeah, there's not too many things that really push my buttons that much, and I, I love nothing more than being in around a team environment. But again, the opposition, I always struggle with the opposition. 
I'm better. I was better. I was getting better at 2013. I was getting better with it because I was around more teams and playing in a few with a lot, a lot of different players um, during the during the IPL in particular. So people, a, a lot more people, sort of get a bit more of an understanding of what I was away from the cricket in, cricket field instead of just being that one to get get in the battle. Yeah, I mean, as an Australian alpha male cricketer, having played with War and Ponting and Warren, and you can't really come across and or show up as this gentle, sensitive, thoughtful person. It just doesn't really reconcile all that well. <laughs> no, it doesn't last very long. <laughs> <laughs> no. so, so as that consummate professional who was constantly driven towards perfectionism, you, you obviously trained, you did everything you needed to do, but you did some extra stuff that other people didn't do. And I'd be keen to hear some of those things that really contributed towards your amazing success. I mean, for like one of the first time, you, you know, you traveled with your own physiotherapist, for example. Mm. So, so what were some of those extra things that Shane Watson did to just pop you out at the top? <clears throat> well, I just, I just never accepted, I never accepted no. I just, I, I just don't, I'm built, so I'm just built that way that I just can't accept no. There's always has to be a way around it, um, around the situation. And, you know, I, I had a lot of, I had a lot of injuries through my through my whole career, um, back injuries from a young age, uh, soft tissue, calf and hamstring injuries, and it got to a stage where I was, I was told that in 2007 that I should stop bowling because um, I had a collagen deficiency, so my muscles weren't stretchy enough. That's the reason why I kept um, getting injured, just having like grade one sort of muscle strains, and um, ended up again sliding doors. I just randomly met. I was in a hyperbaric chamber in Brisbane, and the guy who was running it was a was a, a guru physio. Had worked with Olympic athletes. Had worked um, with cyclists. It worked with the Brisbane and AFL, like one of the most successful franchises in, in the AFL for a period of time. And he ended up sort of opening my eyes up to a different perspective on on the human body. And again, I was I was super desperate. I was either going to have to stop bowling and I loved being an all-rounder. I loved nothing more. I knew the opportunities it provided. I loved being like engaged in the game the whole time. So I wasn't going to accept no. I was, well, if, if, I'm being no, if, I'm, if I'm being told no this side, well, you know what, I'm going to go to somewhere, who, someone who can, they might not give me a yes, but they, they're going, well, if we do this, there's a, there's a chance things could change. So which meant that, you know, I ended up investing in myself to be able to bring this guy on tour with me for um, – it was around about two years that he came on tour with me um, and just, well, ended up hardly, I ended up not missing a game for two years. So you paid out of your own pocket to bring your own physio, you paid flights, accommodation. Everything, yeah. Everything. And it didn't sit that well. It didn't sit that well with Cricket Australia. <laughs> it didn't sit that well at all with, with the hierarchy, with obviously the, the physio of Australia at that time. But Ricky was the captain and he said, look, all I, all I care about is if you want to give yourself the best chance and you're happy to fund it yourself, then go for it. Good for you. If you want to do that, go for it. It's, we're not going to hold you. I'm not going to hold you back. Um, so I was like, well, I'm, I'm desperate. I'm, I, need, I need to throw everything I can at this to be able to see how good I can be. Um, so, and his name is Victor Popoff and he was just a, you know, was an incredible, incredible person and just gave me understanding, direction and just the lengths that we, that he, went and we went to, to be able to just look after my body. Um, so that was, that was one huge thing that, um, 
yeah, made a massive difference to my uh, resilience of the, with my, within my body. But then I was all, I've always been looking at how can I how can I get better. So um, and because of my injuries, <coughs> the mental aspect, and and you were the one who opened my eyes up to this around the mind body connection. That I even though with Victor working through just the the full body as a sort of holistic um, entity working through that the, all the chains, but. I still didn't look into the mind-body really that much at all. And you opened my eyes up to that and thanks to, again, the perfect health as a starting point with Deepak Chopra and reading through a few of his books, I really understand how important that connection is, <laughs> the mind-body and soul connection to be able to, like that that whole perfect health aspect of, of the human body. Um, and straight away the meditation, yoga, um, nutrition and working through all that aspect um, had a huge, uh, huge impact um, and a difference as well. And and then the last thing was, um, and most of the times where I went outside the sort of the circle was, or outside the square, was when I was desperate. I, I was yeah. like, well, am I either going to have to stop or I've got to find another way? And uh, 2015, I was I was really nowhere after um, after Phil Hughes got tragically killed on the field. Then I was um, that I was on the field at first slip when he got. When he got hit, and gosh, from that moment on, I was—I had the fear of—I had the fear of that happening to me. Um, so because I was, my performances had like spiraled because I was—I was desperate. Really, I was either well, I'm going to retire because I'm, I can't. I'm so, not going to. I'm not going to show that vulnerability. I'm not telling the coaches. <laughs> Definitely not, because they'll be going. Well, thanks for telling us, and I really appreciate you opening up to us. But oh gosh, we need to get someone else who's not. We, 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 we're not going to pick him when we face. <laughs> Playing against anyone with a quick bowler, <laughs> exactly. So, um, so how so how I, how did yeah. how did that actually play out in your game for the next year? You know, a whole lot of thinking's going on oh. in your head. Let us. So, what was going on in your head, and how did that play out after that Phil Hughes tragedy? Oh, it was as soon as as soon as I was a fast bowler who I knew had a good short ball, and they didn't have to be bowling 150 k's. Even if it was a bowler who bowled 125 k's, who had a good bouncer. Oh, from every ball that was bowled, just like short ball flying in my mind every time. So every ball they bowled to me, I was, it was a battle to not fl- to get that le- allow that to come in, but it did. And the I short just, ball, and, was, and what would happen if what might happen if well, they bowl a short ball? Well, so if it if, so if it was a short ball, I'd as you said, you think my thinking brain was trying to play the short ball. Thinking brain's not the brain to play the short ball. It's totally instinctive. It has to be reactionary. <laughs> it has to be totally instinct. You can't move quick enough. So I was trying to think through playing the short ball. <laughs> so I was slowing it. So I was, I was getting out to that probably anyway or getting into a bad position, a worse position anyway. But two, if it wasn't a short ball, I was out of position. So my weight was back. Um, weight was back. I was out of position to fuller ball. Then I was, ex- I was exposing myself and, and leaving. Well, yeah, I was exposing myself to, to the bowler getting me out. Um, so it was, yeah, it was as a, as a batsman facing fast bowling, it's the – the opposite thing that you need coming into your mind is short ball because one you're premeditating and then you're trying to think through all. So that's so most of the time, well, just about every time I'd get out, I wouldn't get out to the short ball necessarily because that was one of my strengths. So not a lot of bowlers would really go to the short ball that often, um, but in my mind, I just knew that was the ball that I was, I was fearing, and they'd just they'd find other ways to get me out. So my performance is just. <laughs> Yeah, I had a couple. Oh, look, I had a couple of good performances in there, like, um, but there's a lot of like mm-hmm. not good ones. I ended up getting dropped from Test cricket. I got dropped from the one day team, um, and I was I was nowhere. 
I was like, there's my, I was 34 just after, um, you know, I was 34. I was like, what am I going to do? I think I might have to retire because it's not, like, this is not good. I'm not, I'm not playing anywhere near. I've got no mechanism or no way out of this. And so, sliding so doors just, moment. So, yep. as you walk to that sliding door, you've now 13 years into your international career. Um, you've got all that experience. You see a teammate get hit on the head and he dies in front of you. That plays in your mind for literally a year, impacts your performance. You end up getting dropped from the test team, dropped from the one day team. Um, and then something happens. Yeah. Randomly went to a <laughs> randomly went to an awards dinner, which I never normally go to, uh, and ended up sitting next to an IndyCar driver, uh, Will Power, an Aussie IndyCar driver, and end up to, I was talking to him about how cool it is to be a race car driver and well, it's the coolest thing alive. And um, and he said, oh, you know what, I'm actually I've got, I've got adrenal fatigue. I'm, re- I'm struggling getting into my car because my best mate um, a couple of months ago got killed in a race. Indy cars are like a lot of theirs in the like the velodrome. This kind of speedway goes yeah. round and around. And if 300 k's, if there's a mistake, you plowed into the wall. Um, so, and I'm having the conversation about how you're still getting back in the car because you are. And he said, "Well, there's this mental skills guru. He works with like." Indy cars and NASCAR and Formula One and fighter pilots and that. This guy's just his framework and information is so simple to understand. And at least I've, I've got coping mechanisms, how to redirect my mind and, and understand it. It's like, okay, this sliding door. I need to I need to reach out to this guy <laughs> because I'm nowhere. It's either I'm retiring or yeah, I'm retiring. Where I'm at, I'm nowhere. So ended up connecting with um, this guy um, Jacques Delaire, and ended up. The first conversation we had with him, he just like made sense. I had half an hour conversation. Like, oh my gosh, this guy's like telling me things that, like, from a mental skills perspective, that no one, no one had really talked to me about from a performance side of things. And it's like, okay, I'm flying over to see you. Let's go through. Let's do it. So I ended up flying over to um, to Charlotte, North Carolina, and spent two days working through his his framework and process. And um, like immediately, the information he he, he um, he gave me, I knew, like straight away I knew I could turn things around from like, just understanding how to put the right thing in my mind so the wrong thing couldn't come in, just the really fundamentals of, of human like the, you know, psychology that no one had really explained in really simple terms of how I could use it for, f- for the cause but or also how you got in your own way, how you did use that to sabotage your own performance. And straight away, again, straight away I, could, I turned it like, turned around six weeks of just – rewiring those habits straight away turned things around in 2016 up until really the last um the last year of playing I had some of the best performances of of my of my career especially from a from a batting point of view when um because my bowling my body just really didn't let me do what I wanted to and and in the end but um yeah again that's just and that's why now one of the things I'm doing after after um cricket is um the mental skills is this um, Jacques, you know, I'm a disciple of Jacques Delaire. I've set up my own business here in Australia and <clears throat> working with individuals and, and cricketers. I'm in the process of finishing off a book as, and that as well around just the, the mental skills framework. So it's just something that um, I wish I got taught as a 16-year-old and that's part of my journey now to be able to try and help educate um, as many people as I possibly can. Hmm. What would two or three of the 
gems be that that, that you got right that mm. that contributed to your success that you'll if you can yeah. give us a sneak preview of your what's going to yeah, be in your book so the first the first one the most the most powerful one that turned me around straight away was um, from a performance side of things was as soon as the fast bowler came on like beforehand the short ball was just flying into my mind I was allowing space in my mind and short ball would come in which is not what, what the wrong thing that needed to come in so one simple um, aspect of your brain is your mind can actively only process one thought at a time. So you can't think of two things yeah. at the same time. So to use it for your advantage is put the right thing into your mind so the wrong thing can't come in. So for me, as soon as a fast bowler would come on and I knew that they had a good short ball and I'd, I would be feeling a little anxious, there's, there's, no, there's no doubt about that. I'm not, we're certainly not hiding that, but I knew how to override it. I knew how to not allow that to affect my performance. So what I do is the timing of it was really important. So as a ball was about to be released, as a ball was releasing a ball, I'd throw in aggressive into my mind. So then short ball couldn't come in because your mind can actually only think of one thing at a time. But if I allowed space, any space at all as a ball came out, short ball nine times out of ten would come in. So I could override it. I could override the negative thought, which would negative impact on my performance, I could override it by just putting the right thing in my mind. So that was one. As soon as I heard that, I was like, okay, I can do that. I know I can do that. Okay, <laughs> just get so, the timing right and put it in. <laughs> so that aggressive was the thing that you did a whole lot of work around to eventually get to the place where aggressive, and you understand what aggressive means for you. Yep. There's a whole yep. story behind aggressive. So it's not necessarily <laughs> yeah, yeah. that everyone must put aggressive. You need to find no. the thing that you need to put in your mind that triggers a body memory of that's how I played yeah. my best. And for you, it's obviously aggressive. Exactly. So for, for Ricky Ponting, and again, I wish I asked this question when I was playing with him, <laughs> um, and during my career, Ricky Ponting would say, watch the ball. If you ever watch him um, batting, he would, as the ball was running in, he'd say it at certain times through the bowler's run-up. He'd say, watch the ball. And his whole reason by, for doing it was not allow any noise or any other thoughts yeah. to come into his mind. And then as the ball was bowled, bang, he'd throw that out as well. As the ball was bowled, watch the ball. Again, he just knew that he did that and it wouldn't allow any other thought to come in. So everyone was, everyone's different. Um, for me, aggressive just meant it didn't mean I was trying to like get in a fight. <laughs> it was more so aggressive meant that I was ready to move quickly. Yep. So my muscles and everything was ready to sort of just react quickly. Yep. So um, that, was the, that was the word that really got me ready to move yep. um, and ready to react as quick as I can. Yep. So that was – so number one, that was – something straight away I could turn around um, immediately. Um, the second one, <clears throat> the second one was around, <clears throat> sorry, Patty. Um, the second one was around just how much pressure I used to put on myself around believing that if I trained hard enough, I worked hard enough, I'd get the results and how focused I was on results. So just understanding that a simple understanding around, even if I bought the best version of self, of myself, the reality is that, it doesn't guarantee that I'm going to get the, like I'm going to get the results I'm looking for, the best results, because there's these other things that are that are out of my control or in the way that someone either <clears throat> someone could be better than me, the conditions don't suit me, the negative side of things were well, sorry, the things that would get in the way of me bringing the best best version of myself and then the results I was looking for were things that I didn't actually factor in, <laughs> didn't factor in at all. It wasn't in my sort of makeup that drop catches. Or whether someone take a really good catch out of nowhere, I've got a good decision or a bad decision. 
I was just like, if I worked hard enough, that should guarantee my results. Which meant that I was just, I was on a hiding to nothing. Because <laughs> even the best cricketers that ever played the game, 50, not less than 50, 50 percent that they had good, bad, good games and bad games. And that's the best cricketers ever played. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I was just setting myself up. So once I accepted and realised that for me to get the best results I possibly could, I was, the only thing that was in my control was bringing the best version of me. With, with that's preparation, with that's my engagement right at that moment in time, that was with the understanding of my mental skills, putting the right thing into my mind at the right time, um, not um, having the right mental energy, not burning out my mental energy, all those sorts of things. If I brought the best version of myself and just kept doing that over and over again, I was giving myself the best chance of getting the, res the best result that I could at that moment in time. But I didn't know that, didn't understand that. And once I accepted that, oh, a big weight just lifted off my shoulders, <laughs> a massive weight lifted off my shoulders. So, 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 you, so, so um, you managed to really, the stuff we talk about, focus on the process and let the results no, look after themselves. That's, that's it. That's rhetoric we always use, but how do you do that is the difficult part. And what I'm hearing is you talking to, you really were able to focus on what is in your control bring your best game and the best version of yourself and that's it. And then unattach from the result. What's going to happen from there? In, in a team environment, <clears throat> you're the first one that ever heard talk about that in a team environment. Like Ricky, as a captain, always used to say, the best players, the best teams just do the basics better for longer under pressure. So that was like his way of talking about the process and just doing it over and over again. Um, and but in your words, it was around just bringing the best version of you and detaching yourself from the results because all you can do is, is bring that. The only other environment that I've been in that really talked that way um, outside of you know, the teams that I worked on, um, worked in with you, was the Chennai Super Kings. So Stephen Fleming and, and MS Dhoni, that's how they're built. They never really, they never talk about the, res, like the results and how important it is. It's all about just finding, making sure they bring the best version of themselves and not reacting through selection, through body language, through all, all the other stuff around, um, around the, the results. Um, so it's not, it's not done that often at all, but it's so, it's so powerful just to stay stay present and just stay focused on the process, bring the best version of yourself and just keep doing it over and over and over again until the game's done, until it's done. And that's in, fact, in all aspects yeah. of your life. I've never actually thought about it like this listening to you saying it back is like, so actually bringing the best version of yourself and fully expressing yourself is the best possible result you can get. And if that's, that's the it. only result you chase, the scoreboard result is going to follow more often than not. That's it. <laughs> Sounds simple. It's not as simple to do. <laughs> it's, a constant, it's a constant battle in your mind to be able to stay present and keep doing it over and over again. Yeah. Um, but that's, that's the power. That's, that's mental toughness. <laughs> yeah. Sure. The, you spoke, spoke earlier about overthinking. So you were a specialist in overthinking the game before the game. How did you – So that you, was a third – yeah, that was a third, okay. the third thing that really was the biggest takeaway was around just understanding how, how your mind is a muscle, how if you want to bring the best version of yourself, I need to have as much mental energy as I possibly could for decision-making um, on the field but also 
instincts to have all my neural pathways super clear, not not muddy, not cloggy, not clogged up. So different the techniques that I used to be able to um, have as much mental energy, mental energy as I could. So that was one putting like a a little period of time, so around forty five minutes before a game to do all my preparation. Like this is outside of my training to work through my game plan. Um, just look at footage um, of the opposition and, and work through exactly how I'm going to take on the game, then go through all my sort of technical and mental cues and write those down in, in, my, in my diary. And But I'd just put, I'd pigeonhole a time of 45 minutes. And then every time I'd start to catch myself outside of those that 45 minutes of thinking about the game, I'd just pull myself back to go, nah, I've either, I've already done it or I've got to, I'm going to, I've set myself I've set aside time to be able to actually do it then. But then after that, then I'd meditate for 20 to 30 minutes to, again, to regenerate as much mental energy as I could. So that's where meditation came, became a really important part to my preparation to try and regenerate as much mental energy as I could. Um, and that's where the, you know, the two ways to be able to freshen, freshen your mind up and get some more mental energy is sleep or sleep or meditation. In my, in my than with 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 what I, with my experiences, so that was an incredibly important part in in my preparation as well to make sure that I went into the game as mentally fresh as I could and had all the energy that I needed. Then during the game, different people have different ways. Some people just focus on their breath outside of like you know assessing what's going on and trusting their their gut instinct and what they feel is um, is going on. But then for me, it was getting a song into my head, so like my mind was on neutral. So I wasn't burning through any mental energy until I actually needed to make a decision or I needed to put aggressive into my mind as the ball was, the ball was about to let go of the ball. And then outside of that, put my mind on neutral. So I had all the mental energy that I needed. So like that's after. So that's that's the after sort of version of myself once I understood the mental skills side of things. Before that, <clears throat> I, I had no structure. I had no routine around how to try and conserve mental energy. It was just either... Did it or I didn't. <laughs> so okay, so I mean that's so that's awesome. So so early on in your career, and I think it's what the majority of athletes actually do is you you randomly find yourself thinking about the game in the lead up to the game, uh, and the more important the game or consequential, the more your mind just naturally goes to it, and you think it. And so many players, but even more so now in the bio bubble experience, where you're locked into your room and you don't have, you can't get away from the game you end up overthinking the game. And what you did is you're saying you took 45 minutes and you scheduled that time in to actively, consciously do your thinking and preparation. So if you found yourself just unconsciously thinking before then, you could say to your mind, it's okay, I've allocated the time, you don't need to go there now. And once it's done, you can take confidence from the fact that I've done my thinking, I don't need to unconsciously go back there and do it over and over. And you're able to hold that discipline of, that's yeah. my allocated time to do my conscious, deliberate preparation, whatever it works for you. And then awesome to hear that you've then gone and regenerated and use your meditation after that. So, yeah. you know, and I guess for some and the people listening in this then too, okay, so then sometimes you also actively need to have stuff to do that engages your mind into the present moment. Mm. So you don't find yourself unconsciously then thinking about the game because uh, the mind is going to do that. And that's, I guess, where golf mm. and getting away from the game and that sometimes not too much so, but social media and PlayStation and that can help, but it becomes a bit much of a crutch. And it's been a more of a challenge for players in bio bubbles. 
And then, of course, in the game, the yeah. you know beautiful one to you know music is an incredible tool to be able to become fully present and get out of your thinking mm -hmm. brain because you can't actively think about, you can't actually sing and think, and you also can't actively listen to music and think. And if, you know, if, for those who don't know, you know what you're a you're a musician and you've got you've, you've got a quiet career post what you're doing if, if things don't work out to actually be able to sing and play the guitar. But so it's a great tool, music, to become present and yep. avoid that incessant thinking. That's it. That's it. If you had with – so you've, we've spoken about the mental game stuff and what you've, you've got now and I look forward to, to your book and what's still going to come out from your awesome experiences – if you had the opportunity to give some advice to the young Shane Watson yourself or someone, a youngster walking your footsteps, what now with all your wisdom of the years, what are the two or three, one, two or three piece of advice you'd offer a young you? Um, a couple of things. One, educate yourself on mental skills as young as you can, as young as you can, like 15 or 16. So then I'm developing really good mental skill performance habits from a young age. So less chance of getting in my own way <laughs> um, to be able to um, see, to access all the skills that I, that I work so hard um, in doing. Yoga, do yoga from like every day. <laughs> I only started doing yoga, um, gosh, how was I? I think I was like, might have been 30, 31. Gosh, it changed, it changed my life. Um, and, and with that meditation as well, just reconnecting and, and mentally freshening up. So if I... If I had my time again, that at the age of sixteen, those are the those are the things that would have had a huge impact on my ability to say to perform more consistently, to uh, not have as much stress and anxiety and worry in my life, <laughs> which would have been which would have been better, and less chance of being injured in that as well. Because of yes, I did a lot of strength work, and that was one of the one of the um, huge assets that I had. For, for my age, even my early 20s, I was physically, I was physically very strong because I did a lot of gym because I was told if you get bigger and stronger, you bowl faster and I wanted to bowl as fast as I could. So, but I didn't do yoga. I didn't do all the stretching and that sort of thing to keep my muscles long instead of shortening up. So, um, so those are the, the few, the few things that I, um, yeah, the advice that if I if I had if I had my time again, but the beauty is, Patty, you don't have your time again. But there's people out there who are starting your journey, <laughs> and that's part yeah. of, part of being a human being is to be able to pass that knowledge on, so people hopefully don't make the same mistakes that that I did and that we did. Yeah, beautiful. I mean, I still wonder through your injuries and your the stress, the mental stress and anxiety you put yourself under through your perfectionism is. I mean, we'll never know the answer, but I still have the question and I've asked this and we've spoken about it before is I wonder how many of your injuries might have been exacerbated by just the mental stress and anxiety that you were under, particularly through various periods of your career. I mean, yeah, can, can you draw? We should, we should can have you had draw? To test that out. We should had a A and B sort of testing to be able to, <laughs> to mean, can, prove can, that prove can, that right. <laughs> I mean, can you can you draw any parallels between sort of really stressful times or teams that you played in? And I know you played in a couple of stressful environments and a couple of less stressful environments. And do that, does that correlate much to injuries? I mean, I mean there was normally 
there was oh, for me there was normally a pattern, um, and it was a lead up to a big series, and normally it would lead up to a big summer in Australia because I was so desperate to to do well in 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 the Australian summer in front of the Australian public. Um, and there's normally a, a very similar <laughs> pattern a lot of the time around the worry and the anxiety and the sort of pressure that I put on myself. And then a lot of summers, I, ended up, I missed quite a few summers because I tweaked my hamstring. I tweaked my calf like just before the summer started. And it was normally a similar sort of pattern from I just didn't have any way to break that sort of cycle and break that circuit. Yeah. Um, so I didn't have, I didn't have the, the knowledge or the information to be able to sort of um, work through that. And navigate my, work, my way through that. So there's normally a pretty similar, pretty similar pattern that was yeah. always <laughs> that was always there. Um, and that's the the beauty of being able to really dig into the mind, body, soul aspect um, to really understand that powerful connection that's there. Yeah, I'm I'm quite sure if there's sort of an esoteric or spiritual healer listening to this, he or she probably a she will have some observation around the fact that they were hamstring and particularly calf injuries you know what what is the link between hamstring cough and the, the stresses and i'm sure there's something there but you and i aren't qualified to talk about that but i know Absolutely i know not. you're just i know from, you're open enough but, happening. <laughs> <laughs> what what haven't in what haven't we spoken about that could be really interesting for you or for our listeners uh I think we covered some great, some awesome stuff. Um, yeah. So I've got, I've got two more. In the lead up, in the lead up to this, this is sort of, yeah, I don't, I don't really talk to people <laughs> apart from sort of the mental skills sessions and that what I'm doing. You know, never really sort of dig, <laughs> dig deep into actually the reality of really what's going yeah. on. So it's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, and I appreciate it. I always loved our conversations and yeah, enough. Yeah. And awesome to be able to have this one that just felt as comfortable as always and to be able to share, hopefully there is value for some people listening out there. And there's two other questions I have. I actually asked Leela this morning. Um, she spent a bit of time with you through the various tours and I said to her when she was getting ready for school, I said, I'm speaking to Watto this morning and is there any questions that you would like me to ask him? And she said, yes, Dad. Ask him if he's still trying to beat me as the world's fastest eater. <laughs> <laughs> Yep. Because because you are one of the world's fastest eaters, and you oh. and Leela are neck and neck. Yeah, I know. I, I love my food. I love my food and good food. And I know, Patty, you've said to me so many times, <laughs> mate, you actually got to chew more than like three. You know, you got to chew your food more than three times, <laughs> otherwise it doesn't digest properly. <laughs> so yeah, I'm I'm giving you a run for our money still. Okay, so you still only <laughs> only three bites per mouth, only three chews per mouthful still. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I'm not helping myself there, Patty. Okay. <laughs> All right, so I'll tell you, <laughs> she's, still, she's still got a competitor out there. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I always ask this one question is, if there was a really good question I could ask you now, in fact, an excellent question, what would it be? Uh, I think you asked the, the best question earlier. Is if you, could, if you could go back and tell your 16-year-old self, like give gives give that person some advice after what you've sort of experienced and how would something that would help you through and navigate your your way through life a little bit easier or better. I feel like that's actually one of the most powerful questions I believe because that's again that's retrospectively going. Well, that's I've lived through this journey, 
And now, now that I've got these this understanding and knowledge and experience, good and bad, around it, what would I have done? Sort of, what could I have done differently, or what can I pass on? More so, what can I have done differently? What can I pass on? And um, for me, that's that's probably one of the best questions because that's I believe that's what life's all about. Yes, it's about trying to get the best out of yourself, but it's all about what you can give to to people around them, to around you, to make their lives better as well. Um, so that's that for me is the ultimate question. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful, and I love what you said there, Wado, because that really shows what I saw early on. What I've loved about you is you are so other oriented. You know, I've always said I think you're one of the most consumer team men I've ever worked with because you you genuinely care for others. You're genuinely interested in others. You you're a real team energizer. Um, and just in that that you said there is you know the fact that genuinely how can I take my experience and add value to other people so always love that about you um, thanks so much for your generosity and sharing yeah it's always awesome to have these conversations and we'll stay in them for a long time it's, uh, it's been a privilege being on this journey with you and in this conversation for the last 10 or so years As you would now have heard, this was another in a long line of fascinating and intimate conversations I've been fortunate to have with Shane over the past decade. A big thank you to him for sharing so openly and generously, which is done with the explicit aim of adding value to you, the listener. Although I must say, I learned so much myself with each of these conversations and interactions. And a big thank you to you for offering your valuable time to listen in. I'd love it if you'd please rate and comment on the show, and it would be awesome if you shared it with people or groups who you might feel would gain value from Shane's insights and experience. That's it from me, Paddy Upton. See you in two weeks' time for the next episode of Lessons from the World's Best.